This is the Comp Effect Podcast. When you focus on workers' compensation, you'll have a safer work environment, more productive staff, lower expenses, and you'll crush your competition. We're sharing real-world stories, actionable tips, business-friendly advice, and information to help your business. I'm your host, Todd Tams. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to today's episode of the Comp Effect Podcast. Today, we're going to have a conversation about all of the issues that are surrounding remote employees. There's a lot of businesses right now that have people working from home, working in other states. And frankly, there's a lot of questions that we're getting that, uh, that we want to talk with an experienced attorney about today who can help guide, guide businesses. So today's guest speaker on the Comp Effect podcast here is Kent Smith. And Kent is the president and shareholder at Smith, Mills, and Schrock Law, located in beautiful Des Moines, Iowa. His focus is practicing on workers' compensation, insurance defense, employment law, and civil litigation. And I just want to thank you uh, for coming on the, the podcast today, Kent. Hey, thanks, Todd, for having me. Looking forward to an animated discussion about remote employees. So for the before we bring people onto the podcast, a lot of times we just have a pre-meeting like, hey, what do we want to talk about? And for those of you that are listening, uh, when Ken and I had our first conversation, I think we talked for probably close to an hour and it went by super fast and the information was absolutely fantastic. So we're going to try and rehash some of that today, but Ken's the guy and he knows a lot of stuff when it comes to workers' compensation and remote employees. So Kent, before we get started today, can you just give us a little bit of your, your background and the history of uh, your law firm? Uh, sure. I've been uh, practicing since uh, 2005. I have somewhat of a unique uh, background in law. In 2005, I started at a law firm where I only represented injured workers. Uh, so I started on the plaintiff side. So I did uh, workers' compensation, where I represented injured workers. I did civil litigation, where I represented uh, the harmed party. And then I did employment law, where I represented uh, individuals who had been discriminated by their employers. In 2007, I switched to what is now Smith Mills and Chirac Law Firm, and I became uh, a defense attorney. So I switched sides. Uh, I was playing offense, and then I went to the defense. Uh, so uh, now I represent employers uh, and in their and the actions brought against them by injured employees or uh, you know in an employment law context or civil litigation context the the, the person alleging harm. So that's uh, that's my background in terms of my practice experience at uh, Smith Mills. Uh, you know we've uh, we started. Uh, the law firm uh, merged away from another law, uh, our, our original law firm back in 2007 uh, has undergone, um, you know, modification, so to say, uh, but mainly the principles are still there. And that's, you know, we want to be, uh, we want our niche in the marketplace to be uh, innovative, entrepreneurial, and, uh, you know, client first and client forward. And, and that's, you know, we really tried to develop a community uh, with our clients. We don't like to uh, refer to them just as clients or institutional clients, like you hear law firms say a lot in this side of uh, work. We we try to build community, and so we call our, our you know our client community, um, and we try to foster that type of relationship uh, with the people that we represent. And uh, it's rewarding. Uh, there's pros and cons to each side representing either plaintiffs or being the defense attorney. Uh, but what I like most about being the defense attorney is that community of clients that we've developed. Uh, it's long-term. You know, when you represent an individual that you might live with that case for a year or two, and then it goes away and that relationship goes away. Uh, with the defense work, my relationships expand over time. And, and I think that's really rewarding because you get to grow with the client and, and really see the cause and effect of your represent, representation uh, for them over the years. So 
that's uh, that goes for every lawyer in our firm. They're, they're client forward, and uh, we really try to develop community with them and uh, and grow with them. And so, knock on wood, it's been semi-successful so far. Uh, maybe it all falls apart. Maybe we become Texas and can't provide heat. Uh, for our client community, I don't know. Uh, we're trying to winterize um, and we're navigating this global pandemic uh, like everyone else is. And, you know, not to give you a segue, but I'm at my home right now. So, uh, you know, we're, we're in this with everyone else uh, working remotely. Uh, the challenges of Zoom, the lighting in the background. Um, one of my favorite Twitter feeds is Room Raider. And so it's a Twitter feed that shows he rates or she rates the different Zoom backgrounds of people giving this type of uh, introduction or this type of uh, podcast. And uh, I don't think I would rate very high because I don't have any art or plants or cool posters. So I apologize that my room rating is two that's, out of 10. That's quite all right. Um... I think anymore with Zoom, people are working from home. They're working from their kitchen tables. I had a nice uh, visit with uh, with a guy the other day, and he's like, "Hey, I got an hour before my kids come home." <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. I it. Um, and I, so I'm super pumped to have you on today. Um, I think your experience on both sides, on plaintiff and defense work, is going to help business owners and businesses today. Um, simply because of the fact, I think, I mean, with your experience defending businesses, there's a lot of concern that businesses have right now as people have transitioned to home or working from home. And a lot of, I mean, even some of the, the larger companies I'm seeing, they are no longer going to have a physical presence. And some of them, some of them that are going to bring people back to work, aren't going to do so until the end of 2021. So we've got a year and a half of people working from home. Um, and I think from our, our original conversation, we don't even know what we don't even know yet because some of these are yet to be litigated or you know, we'll see how the claims shake out. But uh, if it's all right with you, let's kind of dig in and talk a little bit about maybe some of the challenges that business owners face or that they may not even be aware of when it comes to remote employees. Is that cool with you? Yeah, excellent. You know, I, I think the, the preamble to any sort of conversation here is uh, there are no laws written for this time, right? <laughs> and the, the legislation in effect, uh, especially governing workers' compensation, uh, it, are not modernized and, and they're not written for global pandemics. Uh, and, you know, the workers' compensation system in general is a quid pro quo uh, for where the employer, uh, the employee, let's start with the employee, the employee gives up the right for certain common law damages. So there's no pain and suffering. There's no consortium claim uh, and, a, and there's no emotional distress. You don't get any money or compensation for those types of claims when it's a worker's compensation claim or worker's compensation injury. Uh, and so the employee gave up those damages for uh, the employer not to challenge their negligence. So an employer cannot challenge uh, an employee's negligence uh, in getting hurt. So if the employee made a mistake or the employee uh, should have been aware of a wet surface and still fell anyway, uh, it's usually compensable because the fault of the employee is not part of the causation equation. It's not part of the liability question of a, of a workers' compensation claim. So that's the quid pro quo. Uh, and that's how workers' compensation laws have been developed over the time. Uh, but they haven't really been modernized into the modern workforce. The, the remote employee or the telecommuting employee uh, has very little case law. And uh, most of the case law we see is usually uh, somewhat articulated under the the the, the coming and go, the going and coming rule, and and has to do with transportation related issues uh, with the remote employee, and so. So when you talk about transportation related issues, uh, just to clarify for the people that are listening, I assume you mean, uh, hey, I'm at a convention in Las Vegas, or I'm at a convention, well, not in Texas right now because they're frozen, 
but th those type of travel related things where people are injured at those type of events outside of the state that they normally work in. Yeah, where they would travel for their company for a business related trip or, or, you know, on a simplified measure, uh, if you have an employee run to the bank to make your deposit, uh, you know, even that short of duration of trip. And so that's where we see a lot of the case law develop uh, when we're talking about a telecommuting or a remote employee under the law, uh, you know, the probably the work from home uh, industry has only really started to develop maybe the last 15 years. And it's, you know, it was very select few who worked from home. And, uh, and so we just haven't seen those injuries manifest into a lot of case law. Um, we do have some, and, and uh, you know, we can dive into that and what, what the relative factors are uh, for those remote employees or telecommuting uh, employees. And I think, I think we'll do that. Um, the primary principle in any workers' compensation claim is you have to meet uh, the baseline question. And the baseline question is twofold. It has to arise out of and be in the course of your employment. And so before you can have a compensable workers' compensation claim, you must meet the basic uh, requirement, requirements of having your injury arise out of and in the course of your employment. Arising out of, uh, think of it as what an employee was doing at the time of the injury. And then the, in the course of, think about that as when the injury occurred. Mm -hmm. And so those two principles have to be satisfied for an individual to have a worker's compensation claim. And so when we start with a remote employee, uh, they still must meet that minimum the minimum requirements of having the injury arise out of and in the course of their employment. Uh, both of those prongs are equally important and you, and you must satisfy both to proceed to any other questions under the statute. And that's universal. So whether we're talking about Iowa or California or Texas or Rhode Island, uh, the basic premise of workers' compensation uh, compensability is that the injury must arise out of and in the course of your employment. Agreed. Whether it's the employee's fault or not. Whether it's, yeah, fault is we, we really don't ever look at, we, we look at fault very rarely. Um, and, and usually we look at fault. Well, really the only way to look at fault in workers' compensation is intentional acts or, or intentional uh, negligence, almost to, to, to simplify it, where they, they specifically say, you know, the heck with that company rule, I'm going to do it anyway. And, and take an, and almost try to get hurt uh, in, in a sense. I had a conversation one time with an employer and it starts out, you're never going to believe this. And I listened to the story and I'll, uh, the, the employee had done something very stupid. I mean, it was obviously stupid. It caused damage. And I said to this business owner, I said, I cover stupid every day. Yeah. <laughs> we have a great saying uh, as defense attorneys, we say stupidity is not a defense. Nope. Uh, and, and so unfortunately, uh, you know, oftentimes, you know, because of the lack of, 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 of knowledge of the workers' compensation statute and because, you know, I often equate workers' compensation as a language. I, I think of the law as a language. And, and uh, you know, I, I speak workers' compensation. And, and that's, that's the same as someone speaking Spanish to me when I speak workers' compensation to an employer. And they'll say, well, you know, he should have known this, she should have known that, she shouldn't have done that, she was really stupid on that. Um, none of that matters because the statute doesn't speak that language, right? And so then I explain that and they're like, that doesn't make any sense. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I know I'm speaking Spanish, um, but uh, it's, it's just one of those things where it's, it's a very narrow section of the law. It's a statutory law and, uh, and it is uh, governed by this quid pro quo that, we, that I explained at the beginning where fault was taken out. And the employers took, you know, they were willing to concede that because they don't have exposure uh, to some of those damages like emotional distress or uh, pain and suffering uh, that can really escalate uh, a value of, of an individual who's been harmed uh, claim. So uh, it's a, 
you know, they've, they've given up that. I don't, I don't know if that would go today. I don't know if employers would want to give up the fault. They may want the damages. I, you know, that would be an interesting survey uh, to, to give businesses. Um, but uh, it, it often infuriates my clients that the stupidity cannot be a defense, um, but it's not. That's a struggle we have with a lot of work comp claims. And, you know, Sally or Joe, they were a good employee up until the, the day that they were injured. And suddenly something has changed. And I see it all the time where, where maybe the company will take a controversial position to the employee because it's like they, they screwed up when they got injured. It was an accident. And I think the reality is, as a company, our job is to make sure people come to work and leave work in the same condition that they came in. They, and it's our job to make sure that we have a safe environment. And if we see somebody doing something not safe, we should coach and encourage them. I think we also need to realize that workers' compensation is an employee benefit. We don't ever talk about it like that, but that's exactly what it is. We are taking care of our employees when they get hurt at work. And for the majority, I think, of most work comp claims, they're, they're unintentional. They're not purposeful. Um, certainly there are those claims that exist out there where maybe people are looking for money, but the majority of them just want to get back to work and, and have the whole thing be done from what, from what I've seen. Yeah. I, I you know, I, I think in its, in its true form, workers' compensation is an employee benefit. It, it clearly is. And, and businesses can obviously budget it. Um, you know, I'm a business owner, you know, that's something that we budget. Uh, you know, we shop for, uh, we try to get uh, good coverage with reasonable deductibles and reasonable premiums. And then that protects our employees from accidents. And, uh, and you know, and if it's an intentional event, like I said, there's some defenses to that. The, the most valuable commodity my business has is its people. And I would argue that no matter what your business is, whether you're a law firm or whether you're constructing widgets, your most valuable commodity in your business is your people. And, you know, we, we say all the time, and, and uh, you know, when we counsel our, our, our client community and is, you know, we need to, the, you know, the major purpose of our, uh, you know, work comp defense of a file is providing excellent medical treatment and getting that claimant returned to the workplace as quickly as possible. And I might accidentally say claim it every once in a while because I'm adverse, uh, usually in my job. Uh, the injured employee uh, into uh, back into the workplace as quickly as possible because nothing good happens, nothing, when that injured employee is at home. Because think about it, when you are injured and you cannot go back to work because of your injury, you are losing a vital part of your social fabric. And so a lot of people are defined by what they do. And what they do is their employment. That is their def definition. Their community is all intertwined with their employment. So if you remove that from them, they've lost their social network, They've lost their emotional uh, intelligence. They've lost their empathy. They've lost their friendships. And now they're sitting at home. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that comes from that is frustration, uh, you know, depression, uh, you know, issues with, uh, you know, interaction with people they don't want to see for 24 hours a day. <laughs> and, uh, and, and they lose that, that purpose. And so, it, you know, one of the things we always try to do as, as, as employers is return our people back to work. We want to get meaningful restrictions uh, so we can give them meaningful light duty work so that we can have suitable work for them as they recover so that they keep that social fabric. Most claims go wrong when the claimant can't return, when the injured employee can't return to work. And, and that's, that's, you know, the primary uh, issue. And, and it becomes a tension point because sometimes the employee doesn't want to return to work because they think they're injured or they think it may impede the recovery. Um, but it, it really, from if you take all the factors uh, into the calculation, into the formula, I think it's vital uh, for employers to try to find suitable work 
uh, for those temporary restrictions that, it, that uh, the injured employee might have so that they don't lose that social network, which really leads us into we're all now working like we're injured <laughs> in a way with restrictions saying you can't come to work. Uh, and so, you know, it's maybe not as hidden as it's, as, as it's been, but I think, you know, one of the, the trauma or the biggest trauma of this pandemic is the mental health of Americans yeah. and the mental health of our workers. And, you know, I, we're not made to be isolated as, as humans, uh, and we're naturally curious and we're naturally social uh, into varying degrees, some people more social than others, but uh, we have taken a huge subsection of the population and, and put them in homes to do their jobs. And, uh, and that impacts, uh, you know, the, their, their, the various social networks and then all the, you know, uh, restrictions that are in place around the, around the country to limit what we do and how we get together uh, for our safety. But at the same time, it, it, it's taking a huge toll. And, uh, and now, you know, employers, unfortunately, will have to deal with how we reintegrate uh, workers and, and how we move forward in re remote environments. And with workers' compensation, you know, the laws are not written for this time. And so we're going to now have to deal with uh, and, 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 and investigate and, and litigate these claims that are going to arise uh, out of and in the course of a remote employees' home environment homework environment. I know. Well, I, I don't want to get off topic here, but I think I read an article yesterday. Um, even the purchase of employment practices, liability insurance right now, premiums are going through the roof because as people transition to work from home, lawsuits have increased for either wrongful termination or wrongful discharge or whatever it may be. And I mean, that it's going to take a while for these lawsuits to work through the system. It's also going to take a while for all the COVID related workers' compensation claims to work through the system. How did you get it? Did you get it from work? Did you get it from your spouse? What if you're working from home? Um, I don't know what the answer is for all those. Um, it's above my pay grade, but uh, I'm sure judges and attorneys and they'll take it on nationwide. And I would hope there'd be some type of protection for business owners uh, when it comes to COVID related claims outside of, you know, maybe the unique health insurance industry. Obviously, they have a very high risk of COVID-related claims being that they're working with COVID. But for the average employer, I don't, I don't know where that fault with them lies, especially if they don't know and they're trying to do as much as they can to protect people right now. Yeah, we, you know, obviously we deal with every day. Uh, every day we have, you know, questions or claims that come through that we defend or, or advise on regarding COVID exposure. And, you know, how the law is written in Iowa is that an employee obviously must satisfy that arising out of and in the course of. Uh, but uh, what we look, you know, that's usually readily available, readily satisfied. They're at work and, and they're doing their job. They're, they're doing their job at work. So they've met the rising out of and in the course of. So then we look at causation. And in Iowa, causation, causation is going to be evaluated by, you know, medical and legal, but it's going to show that the claimant must prove uh, that it's more likely than not at minimum that his or her, her exposure to COVID happened at the workplace. And so uh, there's, there's legal terms like material and substantial, uh, you know, evidence, evidentiary wise, but to make it most simple, and I'm not a giving any legal advice here, but the make it most simple is a, an employee must prove that it's more likely than not that they were exposed to COVID at the workplace. Uh, the way the law is written in Iowa, I would argue, and I'm not a judge, um, and I don't want to be one, uh, but uh, it's, it's, I don't see a clear pathway to compensability for the majority of COVID cases within uh, in Iowa because of how our statute is written. Uh, contact tracing is obviously a huge investigative tool that the employer has to undergo with every alleged claim of COVID. Uh, but, you know, COVID is what makes it so dangerous and uh, pervasive is that you can be asymptomatic 
and give someone COVID. And so that means any point of contact I have today exposes me to COVID. So I woke up this morning and I dropped my son off at one of my sons off at school. No exposure there because I was wearing a mask and he went out the back door and the teacher was, you know, six feet away. So probably didn't get COVID from that interaction. But then I drove home. I picked up my youngest son and he gets, he's, he doesn't have school today. So he's having a special day with grandma and grandpa. And so I put him in the car and I'm going to meet my parents in Ankeny, Iowa. So about, you know, 15, 20 minutes from here. But first we stop at Casey's and I fill up the gas tank. I'm wearing my mask, no COVID exposure there. I go in to Casey's though, because, um, you know, hopefully my wife doesn't watch this, but my youngest son and I, we're going to get donuts, man. All right. So, uh, I mean, this is a ripe opportunity, right? We're at Casey's, we're getting gas and mom, mom isn't with us. So you're darn right. I'm going into Casey's COVID be damned. All right. So I put on my mask and, you know, Casey's got a rule that everyone's got to wear their mask. I think everyone in Casey's had their mask on. I didn't look. I went straight to the donuts. I got some, uh, you know, wonderful vanilla with sprinkled donuts for my son and I. I'm not going to tell you how many in case my wife does watch this. And then uh, I paid with the cashier. I'm clearly within six feet. Uh, we both have masks on. Um, so I have probably, a, you know, a 90% chance of not getting it because of the mask and the six, but I don't know the ventilation system in this particular case. I walked by three customers, all with the same antenna I had to get either Casey's breakfast pizza or uh, donuts. And I should note as a disclaimer here to my wife, I did not get Casey's breakfast pizza. So I was good. Um, I only got donuts. Um, and, uh, and then I walked back out to the car and handed my son, you know, his allotment of the donuts and I kept mine and we drove to Ankeny. We get to Ankeny, we stop in a parking lot at Menards. I'm not exposed to anyone, but my dad, my dad did not wear a mask. He recently traveled uh, back from Phoenix, don't shame him, uh, with my mom. They, they got away for a little while. They recently came back. So it hasn't technically been four days since they've been back, which means that he would not likely show symptoms yet. It's only been two to three days since he's been back. So most of the evidence says you, that you don't show symptoms if you're going to show symptoms until approximately four days. So we don't know if he's going to be symptomatic if he was exposed or not. I was within six feet of him. I wore my mask. He did not. Um, and we talked about how Iowa looked awful last night against Michigan. And we lamented that, can we make a run in the tournament? And is the season over if we lose to Ohio State this weekend? And so that conversation took longer uh, than five minutes, but less than 15 minutes. So could I have gotten COVID today from my father? Yes. Now, if I go into my office today and I talk to my secretary for about the same exposure of five to 10 minutes and she doesn't wear her mask and I wear my mask, could I have gotten COVID from my secretary? Yes. If I do test positive for COVID uh, tomorrow, which one gave it to me? Can we say that it's more likely than not that I got it from my secretary? No, because it's equally as likely that I got it from my father. So I am going to lose, or I should lose the worker's compensation claim. And, and this is not a true example because I'm only using one day. We also know that we have to go back 14 days of interaction. And so we have to go backwards 14 days of every interaction I've had, both at work and outside the workplace. And now you see how the complexity of saying that it's more likely than not that I got COVID at the workplace because every point of contact can equally be as, 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 as can equally be a, a point of exposure as the workplace can. And so that's why you've seen other jurisdictions across the country change or by executive order or by legislative uh, edict say, look, we're going to have a presumption chain put into the law. We're, you're presumed to have gotten COVID at the workplace. Now it's a rebuttable presumption. So some states like Illinois, 
uh, I believe Minnesota and um, maybe even like Kentucky and, and others have put in a, a rebuttable presumption. And what that means in, in legal terms is that it says, it tells the injured employee, yes, you got it at work. So if you get COVID and you were working and you were exposed, you got it at work. And then the defense, me, we have to rebut that presumption. So we have to present evidence that says, no, there's better evidence out there that you got it from somebody else. And so we can still prevail that the, the workplace doesn't, isn't responsible for the COVID exposure, but obviously by the law changing or the executive order changing um, the structure of the workers' compensation law to a rebuttable presumption for COVID, it makes it more likely in those jurisdictions that an employee would win a, a COVID case. Okay, so uh, this, is, this is news to me here. So what you're saying, is let's let's use your secretary as an example. She tests positive for COVID. May have been caused by you, may have been caused by her kids, may have been caused by her trip to the grocery store. But that positive test she can bring back to her employer because she's working in the office and has had interaction with customers or coworkers and then say, I got it here. Is that what you're saying that the law has changed? Not in Iowa. Not in Iowa, but in other states. In other jurisdictions, there's a presumption now. They've written into law the rebuttable presumption. The presumption is that if you get COVID and you were exposed at work, then it's compensable unless we can prove otherwise, unless we can present better evidence to show the exposure would not have been at work or the responsible exposure would not have been at work. All right. So I, I can get this from, I can wrap my head around this argument from a potential healthcare system who are dealing with active, positive COVID patients. I have a hard time wrapping my head around it when people do all of these other things and are going to grocery stores and are going to convenience stores and then blame their employer for their positive COVID test. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's, it's, you know, because of the asymptomatic nature of COVID, Mm -hmm. uh, because you don't know if somebody has it or not. uh, And then the lack of, uh, frankly, the the United States failure (laughs) and and testing uh, universally um, under both administrations so far. Uh, And so we just, the United States is so far behind in in the proper testing and the ability to uh, contact traces. the way you would need to uh, to get ahead of it. That's that's you know we're just you know we've we've moved past that. Now we're in vaccination stage, so we're we're never going to have the testing required to actually control the pandemic in the United States. Um, it's it's all fundamental to testing, and we 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 just you know the government had a failure. If the government has failed at all in, in COVID, it's in testing, um, and uh, and we see that. I mean that's. I, I don't think that's an, an absurd statement or even a controversial statement. We see in the countries that have successfully navigated uh, COVID, they've done it through testing. Um, and, you know, we've, we just skipped that. And that's why 500,000 Americans are dead. And so, you know, we are now into vaccination. That's good. And, you know, there's arguments all up and down about what our herd immunity is and what our natural immunity is and, and, and how many asymptomatic cases are really present. But yeah, that your contact, even, you know, I would argue even essential workers, I mean, there's a lot in the news about the meatpacking plants and the outbreaks that occurred there. And, you know, I think it's very easy to fall into the trap that says, you know, because I was at working at a meatpacking plant or I was working at even a healthcare facility or a nursing home facility or an assisted care facility, um, then it's more likely than not I got it there. Well, no. <laughs> that's really not even an accurate statement. Uh, it's not logic. Um, it, it, and, and I compare it to like, if you've ever played roulette, right? I, I think that's the game. I'm not a gambler, but I've been to Vegas. And, uh, and, and, you know, I think the game was roulette where they spin the wheel and it's black, red, black, red. Um, With a couple greens. That's the. It, it's it, okay. And then like you put like, you bet whether you can bet on the number red black and stuff like that and a great social experiment is to watch (laughs) the betting people and you know you put your money on black right 
and it's either going to be black or red. So you have a 50% chance, right, that it will land on black or red. They spin the wheel and it's black. And they spin the wheel again and it's black. They spin the wheel again and it's black. And let's say it's black 12 times in a row. Well, the natural human inclination is wrong. The natural human inclination is to say, it must be red next time. It's been black 12 times in a row. The odds are in its favor to be red. Now, it's still 50% chance that it's going to be black. So there's no greater chance that, that, that it's going to land on red the 13th time than it was the first time. The odds are still 50%. So really, the play would be to stay on black um, if you're going to play black, right? And so like, but that's kind of what we see with COVID and the and 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 the and employees and and the media sometimes is saying, oh, there's an outbreak at this particular facility. You must have got COVID there. Now, that's not logical whatsoever. What's logical is the contact tracing. What else are they doing? So they go to work, and yes, people at work had COVID. That's a fact. But a lot of the essential workers, unfortunately, live in multi-generational households. Mm -hmm. And those multi-generational households also have people working at other essential businesses during this time. And when they get home, are they staying masked? Are they staying within six feet? Do they have proper ventilation? No, I mean, it's winter. What if their kids are going to school? Around my house and we're all sitting around the dinner table. I mean, we're family. Yeah. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah. And so like, you know, just that exposure, then if they go to Casey's or if they go to Walmart, if they go to Hy-Vee or if they go, you know, out to eat, you know, I, it's funny when we do this contact tracing, it's amazing how many people uh, still go to casinos <laughs> and uh, you, you know, I mean, I couldn't think of a, 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 maybe a worse place to go during COVID, even though their ventilation systems are probably better. Uh, but uh, it's so you know, that same worker that might work at a facility that had an outbreak, when you go back 14 days with that individual, they have been to the casino, they go to Walmart, they've gone to gas, they haven't worn their masks certain times, they visited a friend, they, you know, went tailgating, they've done this. And so, you know, was it really work? No, it's just like 12 times in a row on black on that roulette wheel, wheel now to 13th is not going to be red. It's still a 50% chance. So that more likely than not, it like, makes it difficult. So when, when, you're, when you're defending a business against that COVID-related claim, how, how, does, how does that conversation go? You can say, hey, they went to the casino, hey, they went out to eat, hey, they went here, but they also went to work. And if there's something already built into the code to assume, if there's something built into the state code to assume that they already got it at work, how do you prove they didn't? Well, you know, in Iowa, again, we don't have the rebuttable presumption. So in Iowa, it's just we deny that claim because it's there's, you know, it's it's, you know, in Iowa, you can deny or accept you deny or accept your investigation to deny or accept a claim has to be a reasonable investigation. And, uh, you know, the insurance companies. What's that? Who's paying for that claim right now? Is it the insurance companies? And they're no. Well, the, the, if the claim is made in Iowa for a COVID case, I would argue that most of those claims are being denied because that individual, the injured worker, the COVID uh, infected a worker, can't show that's more likely than not uh, that he or she was exposed that that their COVID diagnosis was because of exposure at the workplace. Um, and so really, we, we, that's why you haven't seen a lot of widespread COVID litigation um, in, in Iowa, uh, you know, come forth. I, and there's some highly publicized COVID exposure outbreaks uh, at some meatpacking plants in Iowa that I'm sure is being litigated. But uh, it, it's, you know, from an evidentiary standpoint, I think it's a very difficult case to prove in Iowa. Now, if it was a rebuttable presumption jurisdiction where it's presumed that they got COVID because of their exposure at work, I mean, they have to satisfy the prong that somebody at work had it and they were exposed to that person. Uh, I still think you can win that case, um, but I'm a defense attorney, so I'm always going to think you can win that case, but uh, you're going to do contact tracing. I mean, you're going to have to prove that that exposure at work was less likely than the than additional exposure that the claimant had. And that's going to be difficult. That rebuttable presumption is going to favor the employee. 
in those jurisdictions over the employer. That's why they changed the law in those jurisdictions. Those jurisdictions wanted uh, the employer to cover that that loss or that claim. Well, I think anytime I, anytime you have hourly workers who are if they if they're quarantined because of COVID and they're not getting paid, I know that. I mean, I think in the first round of PPP, businesses could pay employees to stay home for the 14 days that they were quarantined, but that funding ran out. And so I I think it's a hard conversation right now for any legislature to say, Hey, we've got all these people who aren't getting paid, who are being forced to stay home. We need to do something about it. So they get reelected. Therefore they change the law and they put that burden on the backs of the insurance companies, whether so or not. But then what I'm hearing you say is now the insurance companies are going to pay you. They're going to pay for contact tracing. They're going to try and do everything, or maybe it's just easier easier to pay the 14 days of wages than to do all that other stuff. Yeah, I mean, it really is, it's employer directed. I mean, the employer can pick it up under the policy if they want. There's there's obviously evidence that it could have been compensable because the exposure occurred at the workplace. Um, And most of these claims, like you say, are, are very minimal. Maybe they miss 14 days of work. And so they meet the waiting time and they get a couple weeks of benefits and then they have no other symptoms or they weren't hospital, you know, put in a hospital. Um, but then also if you set that precedent, what happens if, uh, if you accept every, you know, the claim that unfortunately the individual becomes symptomatic and not misses 14 days, but misses, uh, you know, six months or ultimately, you know, unfortunately dies or, uh, you know, or you have a long hauler. What we don't know also is we don't have the data or science developed yet with, with what the long hauler effects are from a COVID uh, diagnosis. Um, we think, you know, if you're not symptomatic that you'll be maybe okay, but are you going to be more prone uh, to, to heart disease or, you know, uh, vascular conditions or neurological conditions? And, you know, we won't have science or data for that for a few years, uh, but, you know, in workers' compensation, we have something called the sequela of the injury. And the natural consequence of the injury is still remains compensable. And so you see that sometimes with like, if I injure my right shoulder and I'm right-handed, um, and uh, so I start doing everything left-handed while I'm recovering from my, my right shoulder surgery, now all of a sudden my left shoulder starts to hurt. And the doctor says, yeah, you're overusing your left shoulder. Now that one needs to be repaired. Well, that can be compensable through that, the natural consequence of my injury, the sequela of the injury. And so my right shoulder and left shoulder are now the work injury, even though I only injured my right one at work per se. Um, well, COVID, you could argue, uh, you know, a good, a good attorney would argue that, hey, my client is now having a neurological condition. My client is now having a vascular condition. My client is now having a cardio, uh, 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 cardiology uh, condition. And that is the natural consequence of the COVID diagnosis. And so, you know, then, then all of a sudden that claim gets really expensive and, and can be, uh, you know, a claim that's going to be open for a very long time. And if you know anything, right, if we know anything about workers' compensation from the employer perspective and the insurance carrier perspective is the longer the claim open, the more expensive that becomes and the more burdensome that becomes on both the, the company and the insurance company. And I think, uh, yeah, I think what you, you bring up a big point here that we're probably not talking about in the, the workspace enough right now, but there certainly is a lot of fear amongst insurance companies when it comes to workers' compensation on what the tail is for these claims. So well, once again, we're fortunate in Iowa that that's not the jurisdiction that we have, but in some states that are passing pro-employee COVID legislation that's putting this burden on insurance companies, I mean, for the first time in, in years, we are seeing workers' compensation rates increase across the board nationally um, after they've, they've stair-stepped down for probably six or seven years. And there's a lot of fear just what does that look like? And if there are death claims, there are serious issues, how long does that, that last? And um, I mean, I think with any, anything unknown where you have a payer, as, and in this case, the payer is the insurance company, they're very fearful, fearful at what they may have to pay out, how that affects their solvency. They're looking at reduced premiums right now 
simply from the shutdown of the economy and potentially larger, larger payments going out next year. I don't know what that looks like. I hope our federal legislature does something to, to protect not only businesses and insurance companies and people, but what that looks like. You're right. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's a complete unknown. And you know, that you're, you use the proper language or the tail is, is going to be scary. And how do the underwriters assess that? And that, you know, and that's, that that's going to be, you know, I mean, because the one thing we know about the, the one thing that's speculated about COVID is that it impacts other, you know, uh, other primary systems within the body. And so it's, it, it's not that, you know, unreasonable for a claimant attorney to start saying, look, you know, my individual got COVID. Now he's having difficulties with his liver or she's having difficulties with her vascular system. And to say that's the natural consequence. And, and, and then, you know, all of a sudden a claim that should have been 14 days and no hospitalization on that, it turns into, you know, a six-year claim where they're in pain management or chronic medication or, or you know, that leads to a mental health condition. And, and that becomes a very expensive claim that wasn't anticipated, obviously, by the policy at the time it was written. Um, but now you have a tail and maybe you're a small business. I mean, no business is protected from COVID. So if you're a small little business, your your mods are going to skyrocket, and uh, you know you could have very unaffordable uh, workers' compensation insurance, and uh, and large companies obviously would see uh, you know more profit loss towards towards that. But uh, and you know if we've learned anything over the last probably six to eight to twelve years is the federal government is inadequate at responding to anything, and so. Uh, uh, it, it, compounding any sort of global pandemic, unfortunately, is uh, our, you know, the healthcare system in the United States is a wreck. And, and so, uh, you know, that I'll probably get on a soapbox here, but that impacts workers' compensation because, unfortunately, workers' compensation, a lot of times, individuals think it's health insurance and it's not. And, and, uh, and, you know, everyone, though, puts their, their toe into the water to try to get a piece of, of that reimbursement from the carrier uh, because, you know, we have inadequate health care in the United States. And, uh, you know, there's, there's probably a political solution, but it's not possible. Politicians. And I speak to Democrats and I speak to Republicans. Um, I think conversation there. I mean, each state is going to have different legislation based upon probably each party affiliation. I mean, you're, you're going to have 50 fragmented outcomes in terms of workers' compensation, stay-at-home, COVID-related claims, just by the nature of how state legislation works. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and you know, workers' compensation is inherently a state system. There's no federal... Uh, regulation of workers' compensation. There's no entanglement of, of federal le legislation with workers' compensation. There's been a big push over the last probably 10 years uh, by certain, uh, you know, interest groups saying that it should be workers' compensation, workers' compensation should be federalized. And, and I think you could see as a result of COVID and different states' response to it, that maybe there's even a greater push to, to do something federally uh, with workers' compensation. Myself, I don't think that would be good. I think state is better um, at managing workers' compensation. A state system is better at workers' compensation uh, than a federal system because states are so diverse um, in their economies. Uh, and, and so certain systems can adapt to those economies better uh, at a state level. I think Iowa by no, no means is California and North Dakota by no means is Iowa. And, and so to have the ability for that state to control their workers' compensation laws and systems is, I think, that, I, I think that's good for all stakeholders and workers' compensation. Yeah, I, I, would, I would agree. I think a federal system for workers' compensation would not only increase cost, it would also hurt injured workers. Um, oh, I agree. Yeah, and it would, it would deliver a poorer outcome than, than what we have today. And I, you know, I think we have a lot of carriers out there that are really trying to create a better experience and do the right thing. And certainly Iowa, um, where we're domiciled at has some of the lowest workers compensation rates in the country compared to Los Angeles County, which are the highest rates of anywhere in the country. 
Um, and I certainly would not be in a position to advocate for any business here that we should subsidize businesses elsewhere because of their legal climate. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, Iowans are good people, and 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 you know, the Iowa nice is real. And and I think also we have access to elite medical services uh, throughout the state. Uh, we're we're really blessed as Iowans to have opportunities for treatment at. at world-class institutions that are within a couple hours from us. And that's, that's a really, you know, in the, in, in many states, you don't have access uh, to that level of medical care. I mean, we can send pretty much anyone in the state to either Mayo or the University of Iowa, if they have a, a, an injury that requires that. And then we also have Des Moines and Omaha with, you know, elite institutions and they're never very, you're, you're usually within three hours at the most of any of those institutions uh, or one of those institutions, no matter where you're injured in this state, which gives you access to some of the best surgeons and physicians, you know, in the world. And, and that's just a, that's a great thing. If you're injured in Iowa is you can get world-class treatment for that injury and, and get a good outcome. And, and that's, that's not always the case in states. No, that's true. Well, we covered a lot of ground today, Kent. A lot of ground. Yeah, except for, you know, I feel like I left out the remote employee. You know, <laughs> that's how it goes sometimes. So we were going to talk about remote employees. Instead, we talked about COVID and some of the legal challenges surrounding COVID, which I'm sure there'd be a lot of businesses that would like to hear about some of those challenges. And, you know, even for me in Iowa, I was not aware of some of uh, what was happening in other jurisdictions. And so I certainly think that there's businesses in those states that, and even insurance agents in those states that may want to be talking to their policyholders about what's happening at the legal climate and what they need to do. Um, you know, I, I shudder to think if I'm a business that causes COVID or somehow through lax practices, one of our workers gets COVID and becomes ill or high medical bills or turns into one of those super claims, let's say for whatever reason, um, that opens up the door to third party overactions from spouse and family and all sorts of other things that, that are going to be very, not, not only are they costy, but it's a bad outcome for a bad situation, I guess, is what I want to say. Yeah. I, you know, employers, I think are trying to be as innovative as possible right now to stay in business. Um, serve their clientele or customers and, and do it in a safe environment for their workers. And, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's been billions of dollars, if not trillions now of funding that's been approved by the, the federal government to help employers. Uh, some of it, some of that billions are to help employers make a safe environment. And there's some funding even via state, but, you know, the thing about COVID is, it's, 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 you know, the, the only really effective tool against COVID is not to expose yourself to another individual. And, uh, you know, we can increase uh, the safety by mask wearing and plexiglass and, and spacing and ventilation. Uh, but the employer cannot guarantee a COVID-free uh, environment ever, even with rapid testing. I mean, we, we, probably the most secure place in the world is the White House, and, and they had an outbreak. And it only takes one person not to wear their mask. It only takes, you know, one individual to uh, make a mistake and, and, and expose many. And that, that's a tremendous challenge on a business then to operate, you know, safely and, and uh, without, you know, exposure. At the same time, that individual has to live, and that individual employee is going, is commuting back and forth. They're going, you know, they're living life the best they can too. Their kids may be in school, their kids may not be in school, you know, and you have to go to the grocery store. You might not have access to delivery, and and so, uh, you know, the best thing is we can all get vaccinated and hopefully, you know, lower the exposure point and low, and most importantly, that the vaccination can help prevent serious entry. And, uh, and that would be a welcome change to, to it. And there's positives. I mean, the rates are dropping now and more and more people are going to start going back to work. And, uh, and hopefully we can, you know, have comprehensive federal legislation that, that protects employers, protects, and, you know, employees, 
and, and doesn't shift burdens of cost uh, to the private sector that shouldn't be there. Uh, because those are always passed down then to the individual, right? And so and, uh, very rarely does the employer or the company actually pay for those. They're, they're passed on in the premium dollars and, uh, and, and other services that are rendered. So it, there's no easy solution, and I don't envy anyone trying to make those solutions. But as, a, as an employer, we, we do the best we can. We require a mask, you know, put in plexiglass, make sure you're six feet or so spaced and work from home if you can. And uh, so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's been an interesting global pandemic over the last uh, year and a half or year, year now, year. It yeah. feels longer. Yeah. Hopefully we can get back to some sort of normalcy real soon. Yes. They would be welcomed. All right, Kent, before we wrap up here, uh, three questions that, uh, that I have for you. What are you reading right now? Um, I am reading, uh, I don't know. Let me look. I am reading, uh, an author by the name of, uh, by Jack Mars, um, primary command is the book. I, I am, uh, my, my, my guilty pleasure is reading uh, spy novels or or uh, action novels. So I read them all. And now I'm on Jack Mars. I guess they're they're okay. They're okay. <laughs> they're not Tom Clancy, um, but uh, you know I I I it's kind of my outlet. I I read all the that genre. So I read a lot. I like to read, but uh, great because I am a huge James Bond fan. Yes, I love Bond. And whenever I see a Bond movie, except for Timothy Dalton, I mean, I'll watch almost any other Bond movie except for those. Uh, and it's the same story, right? It's spot, yeah. fast cars, beautiful women, get the bad guy, stuff blows up along the way, and we all win. And it's the same story again and again and again. And I, every James Bond movie I watch, everyone. I, I just rewatched all the Daniel Craig ones. Yeah, he's on. Awesome. And because I want the new one is, you know, keeps getting delayed. But uh, that was, yes, I, I like those types of novels. It's my guilty pleasure. And I read, I read those. All right. So number two, what are you spending more money on than you should right now? Home improvement. <laughs> <laughs> Country when you say that. Uh, it's, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, I'm like everyone else. If we, we found the flaws in our home and uh, instead of ignoring those flaws, now we are more likely to spend money to repair or fix those flaws. And I don't have the excuse that I'm too busy or not at home or have to be gone for a couple of days. So I'm not handy either. So that's why I spend too much money. Um, it's uh, yeah, home improvement by far. Okay. All right. And last thing here, um, you get a, we just asked you to give a piece of advice or your thoughts to the world. Kent speaks and he says, <laughs> you know, I'm, I don't, I don't presume to tell people what to do. Uh, you know, I, I make suggestions, you make decisions. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> I, and that's a quote, I guess, from uh, not that's not attributable to me, um, but uh, that's uh, that's uh, that's that's uh, that's attributable, I think, to the Dennis Morton. He's a Peloton instructor, so I, I I like when he says, you know, I I make suggestions, you make decisions. I, I, I'm I, you know I I'm I that's all I can do is make suggestions. I um, you know be kind be respectful, be polite. And, uh, you know, we do those three things. We will probably be okay, but they're, they're just suggestions. I totally. Yeah. Hopefully people will take that under advisement. Hopefully it helps their mental health. And, uh, you know, we, we're all distancing. We're all far apart from each other. Kindness is key right now because you never know what the other person's going through. Yeah, no, I, I agree. All righty. 
Kent, I just want to say thank you again for being on the podcast today. If, uh, if people want to get in touch with you, what is the best route for them to do that? Uh, they can, uh, they can email me, I, I guess what, what social networks I have, they can, uh, uh contact through those i i don't know the lingo to tell you what what that what what that's called I, um but uh, i'm on them except for instagram uh and uh you can always visit our website our, our firm's website at smithmillslaw.com all right perfect all right we're gonna wrap this up thanks again kent and uh thanks for all you listeners out there let's make it a great day <laughs>